there's been so much that has already been said, hasn't there? And not nearly enough time to process any of all this good stuff. And yet, it's my job to fire hose you with more stuff. So why don't we pause and ask for mercy. (laughs) And remember, this is not a university. This is a church. We are here not merely to stuff our heads with knowledge, but to acknowledge that our Savior is determined in his love and purpose for us to take what we've heard between our ears and do what only he alone can do and write it on our hearts. That he alone can change our lives. That he alone, in the midst of the incredible mixed bag that each and every one of us is, that he alone can actually use us to communicate his love, truth, and transforming power to others. We're here not trusting in our own abilities no matter how great or small they may be, but in his faithfulness to use our time together to show his tender mercy to each of us that he might use us to communicate that tender mercy to others. So as we gird our belt and prepare for the last few talks of the day, let's come to him for strength for solace and for hope that what we are about to hear the rest of the day will be meaningful, useful, life-giving, life-changing. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Heavenly Father, by the power of your grace, we would be moved to love Jesus today. Amen. Now, uh, these are being recorded, and I have strict instructions, which I normally always forget anyway, to repeat all questions and answers. So if I repeat your answer, it is not because it hasn't been perfect enough. It's merely so as to make sure that those who invest good money in these tapes get something out of it. I'd like to begin by asking a simple question. What are you expecting to get out of our time together? That is not a rhetorical question. (laughs) A release from perfectionism. Not a bad aim. (laughs) 
Um, just to clarify, my name is Ashley Knoll. And this is the seminar on perfectionism. This is, this is for those of us, this is the overflow room for the church. So those of us who couldn't get a seat upstairs just stayed down here and watched. That's what that is. No, this is perfectionism. All righty, any other? What other expectations? Yes, ma'am. Well, you're looking for ways to help people who struggle with perfectionism. Yes, sir. Thomas who? Oh, Thomas Cramner. There we go. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury and Henry VIII, the reformer of England, um, wrote the first book of Common Prayer, and a really good guy. How someone as thoroughly humane and, shall I say, understanding of human nature, how we understood that in relation to perfectionism. Any other? Yes, ma'am. I'm not sure that I got all that. Say that again. It was really beautiful, though. The causes of perfectionism. The maintenance cycle. And the biblical response to perfectionism. I probably should have written the talk differently now that you say all that. <laughs> but I'll do my best, but it won't be perfect. Those are good expectations, though. <laughs> any, other, any other expectations? Humor. I'm American. That doesn't work. Um, the, the, the lady said that you're a, um, a sports chaplain and that work, work with professional elite athletes and you make it work. And there, there are tears in my eyes and it's, and it's not, it's because it's a heartache for every person that you help. There's others that you don't. And it's the ones that help that make you think that you're the best thing since sliced bread. It's the others that make it clear that there is a brokenness and things, there's a mystery and there is a lot of hurt and suffering in the midst of the elite folks. But what I found helpful sharing with others, I'll be more than happy to share. Yes, ma'am. What a concept. No. Um, uh, that you're a life coach and that people have been holding up as, a pos- as role models, gold medalists, Christian athletes who have it all together, and we need to follow their example of, six, of, of becoming winners through Jesus, winners for Jesus. 
Oh. Oh. When you say when you say coaching, you mean sport coaching? No, no, life coaching. Okay, all right. That you want to be as successful as these athletes are by purpose driven, all that kind of stuff. All righty. Any fears or anxieties? Really? If I let go of overachieving, I let go of my identity, I let go of that which gives me value, I become worthless, which is what I really fear I am in the first place, which is why I'm overachieving, right? <laughs> Spot on. Is it safe to open that door? Is it? Uh, I'll take two more fears, so to speak. I will hopefully address that, but I'm sure not perfectly. So come back at the end, okay? But it's an excellent question because it's it's at the very heart, especially for athletes, of what is the fuel of their success. Yes, sir. That's very interesting. One question. The fear of failure versus fear of success. I actually have... The, why, the rule of procrastination for those who are, who are per- perfectionistic. I actually haven't addressed that, but please ask that question. Because once the whole thing's out there, it'll be really interesting. I, I won't remember it. Yes. I am humbled by your precision. Let's get down to work. Is striving for perfection our Christian duty and our Christian joy? Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Have you noticed, especially if you have one of those modern... Uh, translations with chapter headings and paragraph headings. Take a look at chapter 5. It talks about fulfilling the law, having more righteousness than the Pharisees. And then what does it list? Things that you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees in. In controlling your anger, controlling your lust, turning your other cheek. Loving your enemies. And then, just to make sure you understand all of this, could someone please read for us the very last verse of Matthew chapter 5? There are Bibles up here if anyone needs them. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is. Hmm. Okay. So clearly that means that it's our Christian goal and duty 
Duty's always a good word, right? Our duty to pursue perfection. And isn't that what we commonly understand as the thread of continuity between Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Christian? That striving for perfection. Let's please turn to Acts chapter 22. I need a volunteer to read 22, 3 through 5. Who will volunteer for that? Raise your hand. Be bold. Okay, great. Thank you. I, I want someone else to turn to Acts 26. Who will volunteer for Acts 20? Okay, great. Please read for us Acts 22, verses 3 to 5. Uh, that should be that's verse 6 right okay Acts 26 verses 4 and 5 and 9 through 11 go for it our volunteer What word comes to mind when you think about Paul, Saul, Saul the Pharisee? Zealous. Could we open those windows up there, perhaps? Do they open? They don't. They just look good. Okay. Um, let's open the main door and shut that one. The, oh, that's where the footage. Okay, great. All right. No problem. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Zealous. Zealous to the point of what? Obsession and bloodshed. He makes very clear that in order to honor God, he pursued Christians to their death. What about Paul the Christian? What is the hallmark of his Christian life? Please turn to Philippians chapter 3. Who can read for us verses 10 to 14?
coming in like Peter when he's dead. And so somehow to obtain his resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press onwards towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What's it sound like Paul's doing? He's striving for what? A goal. And what's the goal? To be perfectly in Christ, right? What adjective would you use for him? Zealous? Zealous? Is that the difference? Saul, the Pharisee, is zealous. Paul, the Christian, is zealous. The difference is that Saul, the Pharisee, pursued God's will, but actually he was dead wrong. And then when, he, when Jesus made clear to him what was God's will, that he was the Messiah to be honored and proclaimed, he was then just as ferocious and zealous in pursuing God the right way. Is the change in Paul not of makeup, but of goal? Isn't that what we normally hear? And that it is our Christian duty to zealously pursue perfection, to be perfectly submitted to Christ. Now, I don't know if this joke works here, but in America, there's a really famous song that all Southern Baptists sing. It goes like this. I surrender some. <laughs> What's it supposed to be? All. all. Isn't that the, the ideal that we say that we are expected to pursue surrendering all perfectly if we are to be followers of Christ. That we must, as we pursued the world before, and by the world we don't mean Michael Lloyd's meadow. What do we mean by the world? Pomp, power, prestige, all the things that claim ownership of us rather than God, the things that enslave us, the things that we think might save us rather than Jesus. We feel called to strive to go in the opposite direction. Have you ever felt that restlessness in you? That sense of inadequacy as you are. But if you can just reach this goal. If you can just push yourself above the crowd. And define yourself by achieving X. 
restlessness will resolve into peace and wholeness. And the whole art of life is finding the goal that will resolve the restlessness, right? And the problem with Saul of Tarsus is he had the wrong goal to harness his restlessness. Ever felt restless? And the hope by achieving perfection and X, Y, or Z, you'll find peace. Do you know that most folks who are overachievers are convinced that their restlessness, their sense of inadequacy, shall we even use that nasty but accurate term, their drivenness to succeed is their key to success. Anyone here ever watch the firm? The John Grisham? If you want to know how the powers that be in elite circles in the world look at folks and what they're looking for, read the first chapter of the firm. What's the story of the firm? Remind me. Mafiosa law firm, they need to have the best and the brightest, but because it's a little bit illegal, they want to snare someone, trap him in, so that he won't be able to leave when he finds out what's really going on. And therefore, they're looking for a special kind of person. In the phrase of the first chapter, our kind of man. And guess what they're looking for? Why is Mitch McDear the perfect candidate? Because he is driven to succeed. He's number one in his class at an Ivy League law school, but he comes from, as we would say in America, trailer park white trash. He's from the bottom of the bottom. He grew up poor, and in the words of John Gresham, he's hungry because he needs to overcome all the sense of inadequacy and rejection that he experienced growing up. And they feel if they can just buy him and give him what he deeply needs, once he figures out what's going on, he won't leave and lose all of that. That's their plot. That's fiction, right? I was talking to the head of investment banking of a global financial firm. And we were discussing this. And he said, well, you know, Ashley, that's exactly what we do here. We look for people who are highly talented and highly insecure. Because we know they will be the first at their desks in the morning and the last to leave at night. And they'll make us the most money. I was talking to another friend of mine who happens to be uh, the, uh, oversees a whole section of America sales representatives for a major pharmaceutical company. He said, well, actually, Ashley, when I actually go out to hire salesmen, I look for those who are hungry, who are restless, because I know They'll be driven to achieve. 
Hey, anyone, counselors here? Ministers? Pastoral principle number one, if you work with folks who have succeeded, work with people who are overachievers, work with yourself when you look into your heart. If someone goes very far, very fast, the question you have to ask is, what are you running from? In our society, we encourage people to self-medicate their pain, rejection, insecurity, and unhappiness with achievement. Now, Clearly, that's far better than self-medicating with drugs, alcoholism, disruptive behaviors, all sorts of other things. But it doesn't make them any more happy, does it? If you are looking for your drivenness to lead to peace, does it ever? What do you have to have to have that peace? You have to have the image, the illusion of perfection, right? Anyone ever achieve perfection? So therefore, what must you have? More and more and more. Like any drug, the more you use it, the more, the larger the dose you have to take to get the same kick it gave before. It's true of athletes. But don't take my word for it. Take Andrew Agassi's word for it. The road to number one goes over Hoover Dam. When I am almost eight... My father says the time has come to move from backyard session with machines to live, real little boys. I win my first seven tournaments in the tin and unbracket. My father shows no reaction. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. We cross over the Hoover Dam, and I see all the huge waters of the Colorado River backed up against the dam. I think about the rage bottled up in my father like the Colorado River inside the Hoover Dam, only a matter of time before it bursts. Nothing to do but scramble for higher ground. For me, that means winning. Always winning. What has he just told us? The rage and uncertainty of his environment. He looks to sport as his haven. But where can he find haven in sport? Only one way, which is what? Winning. And what did he say about winning? Always winning. Perfection in winning, right? He then goes and talks about playing against a young man named Jeff Tarango. In junior tennis in America, the players are their own linemen. 
that means they call a shot in or out, and it's beyond dispute. In this game, it's very tense. Uh, Andrew plays with everything on the line. So does Jeff Tarango. He figures that he must have a father just like him because he's playing as hard, and neither of the kids wants to lose, and it's down to the last ball. Tied dead heat. This is match point, and after a rally, Andre hits the ball, and it's a screamer three feet in but out of Tarango's reach perfect shot. He's won. But Tarango starts to cry, comes up to the net, and then breaks into a smile and shouts, out! He calls the ball out. Clearly, everyone in the stands knows he's cheating, but he would rather cheat than lose. Now, it's Andre's time to cry. Remember, he's not yet eight. For once, I'm not afraid of my father. No matter how angry he is with me, I'm angrier. I'm furious with Tarango, with God, with myself. Even though I feel Tarango cheated me, I shouldn't have put him in a position to cheat me. I shouldn't have let the match get that close. Because I did, now I'm going to have on my record forever a loss. Nothing can ever change it. I can't endure the thought, but it's inescapable. I'm fallible, blemished, imperfect. A million practice shots. He's not even eight, and his father has already literally put him through a million practice shots in the backyard. A million practice shots for what? After years of hearing my father rant at my flaws, his impatience, his perfectionism, his rage, his voice now doesn't just feel like my own. It is my own. I no longer need my father to torture me. From this day on, I can do it all by myself. Andrew Agassi learns that in order to win, he has to stop losing. And how does he learn to stop losing? By shaming himself when he loses. And in fact, a little later, later on, a coach comes up and helpfully points out to him that when he feels that pain of losing, what should he do? Channel it. Harness it. Use it. And how do we channel and harness that feeling of shame and worthlessness that comes from losing in sports? I don't want to ever feel this again. So I'm going to use it as motivation to work so, so hard so I don't have to go through this experience. I'm going to use my pain as the source and the secret of my success. My drivenness to achieve will be rooted in my woundedness.
Let's think about that for a moment. If I need to use my woundedness to win, will I be able to win if I don't feel wounded? Wholeness might rob me of my identity. I might need to hold on to that pain in order to medicate it. Will that strategy be a strategy for success? I'm going to hold on to my pain in order to get rid of my pain? No. But you know what the terrible thing is? Christian athletes do the same thing. You know what the number one question I'm asked at the Olympics when a Christian athlete doesn't make his or her goal? Guess. Will God forgive me? Does God still... No. Did what? did I do wrong that God did not feel that I was worthy? What was the imperfection? What is the rationale so often we use in Christian evangelical circles about why someone can pursue something as clearly pride-filled and arrogant-inducing as trying to win an Olympic gold medal? What's the, what's the excuse? We're going to channel all those restless, sinful, destructive impulses towards a godly goal, right? And what's the godly goal? A platform. Because when I have a gold medal, what's going to happen? People are going to want to come and listen to me, and I'm going to talk about Jesus. Now, please understand me. Um, there are some Olympic gold medalists that I shed tears when they share the gospel because it is one of the most beautiful and moving things. But you know, does Jesus need that gold medal to make his gospel credible? That's like putting the purple coat back on Jesus and mocking him. And I could tell you wonderful stories uh, from my vantage point, it would look like God supernaturally intervening and bringing about athletic success in Beijing that nobody expected. But for every one of those wonderful stories, I could tell you 10 more of good, faithful Christian athletes who had their, their dreams shattered in front of their eyes and learning that although God may call this person to have an Olympic gold medal, he may call you to do something else how God is going to use your participation in sport is in the same way he's going to use that person's participation in sport. And when we've raised this expectation that the only justification is for evangelism and therefore when they don't win the gold medal, their first assumption is, guess, I'm not perfect. The devil is so helpfully consistent 
that the minute they lose, he points out every indiscretion in thought and action they may have indulged in trying to cope with the incredibly immense pressure of being at the Olympics and wounds their soul and says, this is why. And why are they susceptible to that? Well, they're human, but also because of us. We haven't given them the proper theological perspective. We've told them that the point of how they harness their restlessness is to direct it to a godly goal. We haven't challenged the lie that peace comes through perfection. We have, in fact, let them think of God as a superhuman coach who looks at them based on their spiritual performance like the coach looks at them on their physical performance. So in the very moment when their hopes and dreams are shattered and they feel they've let down their country, their family, their coach, their teammates, they feel they've let down their family and friends and themselves, when they need the assurance that after Good Friday comes Easter Sunday, they can't turn to God because they feel God's cut them from his team. That's where they are. I do not know what the rigors of hell are like, but it can't be much worse than that. But you know, the sad thing is that Christian athletes aren't all that different from Christians, are they? Isn't that exactly what we do? Isn't it common amongst evangelicals to be saved by grace but sustained by sweat? God has done his part in making you born again. Now it's up to you, with all of your effort, like Paul, to pursue and strive to be the perfect example of where you don't sing, I surrender some. You live that you surrender all. Ever heard that? And what happens when your human frailty rises up to assault you and reminds you that you are not the perfect Christian that you want to be? What do you do? Well, if you're an American evangelical, you don't worry about that. You just talk about doctrine all the time, and that makes you feel better. (laughs) But if you grapple with your lack of holiness, what's the instinctive? What do you do? What did Adam and Eve do? They hid. And then what did they do? They made fig leaves. Isn't that what we normally do? That when we mess up, we withdraw from God's presence and clean up our act. And when we feel that we've cleaned up our act and proven, when we have repented and shown that we're good enough to be acceptable to him, then we come back, right? And what strategy do we use to help us find the willpower to, to do better? Confession. 
gosh, I didn't realize how holy the Brits were. Just American culture. No, what do we do? We shame, guilt, duty, right? We do, we tell ourselves we're spiritual losers. Until when? Like an athlete, we prove by our better performance that we're going to be good enough for God to accept us. Let's think about this. I want to go fishing. I have a hook. Do I put the hook in the water? No, I put bait on it first. Why do I put bait on it first? Because God and his wonderful creation didn't make fish completely stupid. (laughs) Sin always has a bait. What's the bait? Whatever variety of sin you wrestle with, it always has the same bait. It makes you feel good if it's even for a short time. Why would anyone be an alcoholic with all the destruction that it brings into your life? Or gambling. Because it enables you to escape momentarily. And if you've got lots of problems, that can seem like a good, can it? So let me think about this. What's my strategy as an evangelical Christian to help myself not sit in the future? I'm going to withdraw from God and do what? I'm going to fuss at myself, shame myself, tell myself I'm worthless until I get better, right? That's what I'm going to do, right? So let me think about this. What's Tim, what is the hook of temptation? To make myself feel good. So the way I'm going to fight the temptation to make myself feel good is what? Make myself feel bad. Is that a strategy that's going to work? Doesn't it actually make me more vulnerable to the temptation? Isn't that what we do? I had a wonderful bishop say, I went to this church and one of the senior saints of God took me aside and said, we have this lovely pastor bishop, but he just, when he gets up in the pulpit, all he does is fuss at us telling us what we should do, what we should be, what we need to do to strive harder so we can surrender all. Isn't that the whole point of the prosperity gospel? I'm born again. I need to use my willpower to to believe. And if I believe hard enough, God's going to reward it with what? Money. If I was thinking about that, I'm going to use the spirit to indulge the flesh. I don't think so, but nevertheless. Or, if I believe hard enough, what will he do if I'm sick? Heal me. And if I'm not healed, whose fault is it? If I'm not rich, whose fault is it? If I'm going through a desert experience which is part of the natural maturing process of learning to walk by faith. 
Why am I there? Not because God is maturing me, but because I've failed. Because if I'm not happy and joyful all the time, if I'm not perfect, then I'm not exercising my faith, right? And whose fault is it? I'm an American. You may have noticed this. And one of the privileges of being American, having lived in England for 10 years, is you can observe things as an outsider to culture. I spent a year as the chaplain to a boarding school called Fetty's College in Edinburgh. And I understood so much conservative evangelicalism in this country, having been to boarding school. (laughs) So many of my friends in the conservative evangelical world, the non-charismatic version, still live by public school. (laughs) It's funny because it's true, isn't it? But it's not funny because it's a nightmare. What was I I educated? Because I was as American. I wanted to affirm everybody. What's the purpose of boarding school? Highest praise is no criticism. You constantly, constantly point out the inadequacies to force them to work harder and harder and harder. And what are they supposed to be waiting for at the end of the year? Well done. Right? The whole year, negative, negative, negative. Well done. So many conservative evangelical ministers have internalized that pursuit of perfection. And they have an absolutely impeccable ministry. Their sermons are incredible. Everything is run with beautiful efficiency. And I take my hat off to that. But what's the cost? Constant low self-esteem constant sense of inadequacy. And why won't they let go of that? Because that's what fuels their excellence, right? That is, I'm afraid, what boarding schools teach, isn't it? But the charismatics are different, right? (laughs) They know it's not about self-effort. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit, right? What have I seen in charismatic English pastors? You know, I understand there's this church in Knightsbridge. And in 1985, it was just a small parish church. Had some interesting courses, some nice people. But you know what God did in those last 25 years? Or, that's actually me speaking. Do you know what Sandy Miller did in the last tw- those 25 And Nikki Gumbel. Have you heard? Well, Clearly the Spirit wants to do great things, right? If he's not doing great things in my church, it can't be because he doesn't do them anymore. What must be his response of the charismatic pastor? Like the Olympic athlete. What did I do wrong? Where am I morally imperfect? Why am I not worthy? And who, if they look into their heart, can say there's no grounds for that question in me? 
Well, we've heard how successful business people harness this inner pain for success. We've heard how Christian athletes do it. We've even heard how Christian ministers do it. Maybe it's about time we looked at Paul because he's the one we blame for all of this, right? Is that what Paul was really about? Turn to Philippians chapter 1 for me, please. Could someone read that? Uh, could someone please read for us verses 12 to 18? So let me get this straight. Where's Paul? Prison. Where does Paul want to be? Outside doing what? Preaching the gospel. What's his big dream? To go to Spain and preach all around the world. What's preventing him from preaching, seeing his dream? He's in prison. God's benched him. And so what question is he asking? Is he saying, what did I do wrong? What's he doing? He's rejoicing. What's he rejoicing about? The people who are saying you're in prison because you have bad theology. God's benched you. You've screwed up. I'm going to take advantage of this and show that I'm a better preacher because God let me out and you're in prison. (laughs) Paul's response is he's rejoicing. He may look like Saul the spirit the Pharisee on the outside. But that heart's different, isn't it? He's not driven anymore. He can be at peace when benched. He can be at peace in the midst of failure. It's not about striving in order to find peace. For Paul, it's striving because he has found peace. It's a profound difference, isn't it? It's not harnessing pain. It's rejoicing and healing. I've said a lot, I've spent most of the time talking about the bad news. Let's shift into hyper gear about the good news. What insight did Paul have? God's love can't be earned. If it's earned, it's not love. If we pursue perfection 
to convince ourselves and God that we're good enough to be accepted, we're under the law. And Paul says to the Galatians, what happened to your joy? You would have plucked out your eyes. That's Galatians 4.15. Our ability to say no to sin, to sacrifice our false dreams, to surrender all, doesn't come as an attempt to get God to accept us. Why do you give a Christmas present to your spouse? Because you're trying to tempt them into loving you? What's the joy of a parent with small children on Christmas and watching them open packages? It's the joy of having worked and sacrificed to see the joy on their face. (laughs) That kind of love produces fruitfulness. Hard work, sweat, but it's of a completely different caliber from a completely different source. Let me think about this. Shame, guilt, fear, and duty. Does that produce love? What produces love? Knowing we're loved unconditionally. Luke 15, the prodigal son, verse 19. When he's in the pigsty, he says, I'm going to go back. I'm not worthy to be your your son. Hire me as one of your hired men. When he goes back in verse 21, what's he say? And stops. He doesn't add that last line about hire me to be your son. Why? Because repentance doesn't come in verse 19. It comes in verse 21. When he's asking to be a hired man, he's asking for a job. He's not throwing himself on the mercy of his father. He's saying, I got a really bad employer who's letting me starve. You'll be a good employer. Let me earn my keep. What's the difference? The father runs to him. Why does the father run to him? The father has to run to him because the father knows that when he left the village, he insulted not only the father but all the village. And the village men will be there and they're going to beat up his son. And he has to get to his son before the villagers do, because if he embraces him publicly as the wealthiest man, nobody will touch his son. So out of love for his son, he goes, ladies, ever wear a long evening dress? What do you got to do to run? You got to hitch up the dress, right? Why do you wear robes if you're a sheik? You cover your body to show that you don't have to work. And in Arab culture, to raise and show your legs is to humiliate yourself as a common laborer. The father humiliates his son so his son doesn't have to be. That's what breaks the heart of the son, the unconditional love of the father for the son as he is, messed up with all the circumstances and consequences of his foolish deeds, the father still loves him and embraces him. That's the heart of the Christian message. That's the heart of Thomas Cramner's Gospel of Grace. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Cramner says the medieval church, despite its best efforts, has misunderstood and said that you have to make yourself with God's help, but you still have to make yourself acceptable, good enough for God to love you. And Thomas Cramner says, no. We can only be good enough 
in Christ. And our relationship has to be a gift. And the medieval penitentials encouraged shame, fear, and duty to get people to change. And Cramner says the only thing that gets you to change is love. And the only thing that produces love is, guess what? Knowing you're loved. And the only thing that will let you understand that you are loved unconditionally is the promise of Paul, a free salvation, assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that love will change your heart. And then it will change your will. And then it will change your mind. And out of that love of fruitfulness, an effort will emerge, but not to prove your worthiness and not to assume the perfection of having to be perfect in order to be loved, but the joy and the freedom of recognizing you don't have to be perfect to be loved and that you don't have to be perfect to be of use now. Let me give you three words of wisdom and three questions to leave on. Words of wisdom one. What's the growth in holiness? Actually recognizing how much more sinful you are. Because God is love doesn't show us all of sinfulness. Who can stand? So as we begin to have some progress and get some issues tidied up, even though others don't get tidied up, he then opens up new areas. The harsh reality is you have to grow more like God to recognize how unlike God you are. Two, newsflash. If your congregation gives you their all, guess what they have to give you? They're good and they're bad. It's a package deal. You will have to learn to overlook their shortcomings in love. Oh, by the way, if you give your congregation or your counseling practice your all, what are you going to give them? You're good and you're bad. It's a package deal. Guess what they're going to have to do? Learn to overlook your shortcomings in love. And if you do not model overlooking theirs, should it not be a surprise if they don't overlook yours? But doesn't that bring us back once again to striving, fear, shame, guilt, and duty? I've told you what you need to do and now you do it. I feel unconditionally loved. I therefore am a completely new person, right? Is that how it works? No. Three questions to leave you with and to ponder. What makes you feel loved unconditionally in your life? Cultivate that. I hope it includes Jesus Christ on the cross because it's his performance on the cross for us that gives us a worth and value that does not go away. I hope it's other people too. But what makes you feel unconditionally loved? Cultivate that. Two, what activity in the doing of the activity brings you joy? Not the completion of it, not the result of it, not the grading of it, not the ranking of it, not the perfection of it, but the doing of it. Anyone here ever make Christmas cookies? 
you have 10,000 things to do, don't you? With whom? With your kids, right? When they, when they were little. And they made all this mess. Had you so much free time at Christmas that you could? It's the cook. The cookies have a purpose because you can give the biscuits away as gifts. You can eat them for dessert. It's not busy work, but there's a larger purpose, and that's the bonding. The activities in which God calls us to be active in, they have a purpose beyond just the activity, what it produces, and that's to bond you to God. In the words of Eric Little, when I run fast, I feel his pleasure. What activity do you find joy in doing that you've been made to? Cultivate that. Cultivate the, where you find unconditional love. Cultivate where you have joy. And then as you cultivate these things in your life, you know what you're going to discover? You have within you God's stream, his spirit, his power that will bear fruit. Because when you know that love and know that joy, what are you going to do? You're going to pass it on. And you're going to do lots of things that will make it look like you're striving, but not for perfection, but striving to pass on what the peace and wholeness and healing process, because it is a process that you have received. Ponder those questions and ask God to use them to change your life and the lives of those you counsel. Thank you so much for your time. I'm afraid we've waited so long to be gone that I must encourage you to rapidly go upstairs so that perhaps they'll ask me back sometime in the future. Oh! Third question, um, what was, no, first question is what cultivates unconditional love in your life, what cultivates joy, and then to ask God how those first two, where he wants you to pass it on to others. Thank you.